Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of uh, the thoughts I wanted to share with you, if we could give a title to the thoughts, is uh, Who is your high priest? Who is your high priest? And of course, when I ask a question like that, uh, generally the answer pops into everyone's mind. There's only one answer. Who is our high priest? Well, that's pretty obvious. And it would be a short study, a very short study, if all we had to do was just answer this question. Well, of course, it's Christ. He's our high priest. Who else could it be? And we want to explore that question a little bit today because we find that the enemy, sadly, has devised many ways and means to deceive God's people over the most basic, fundamental questions in the Scriptures, such as, who is your high priest? And while we might think we have the right answer and the right understanding, sadly, many times we find that we don't. And that's what I want to explore a little bit today when we look at the question of, who is your high priest? Of course, when we talk about the high priest, we obviously are talking about the subject of the sanctuary. And as uh, many of you know, most of you know, we are told that the sanctuary is the central pillar or the foundation of our faith. Isn't that right? Especially uh, if you are from an Adventist background, uh, the sanctuary doctrine is a very near and dear topic to us as Adventists. We actually take a lot of uh, pride, in a sense, in the fact that we have this distinctive understanding of what we call the sanctuary truth. Isn't that right? And we, we see that the other churches perhaps don't necessarily uh, have that understanding, and, and we realize that it's a very important foundational truth. Now, that's not just because we like that topic and we talk about it uh, as important. That's not what makes it important. It is actually a central pillar for truth. We find that in the Scriptures in Psalm 77. So if you have your Bibles with us this morning, you can turn to Psalm 77 as we begin this exploration and as we examine the question, Who is your high priest? Psalm 77. Book of Psalms, chapter 77. This is a familiar passage to many of you. But I want us to look at a few of these passages and see what we can learn and find together. Psalm 77, and we will look at verse 13. And right here, the Bible tells us, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So here it tells us plainly, brothers and sisters, God's way is where? In the sanctuary. Of course, sanctuary, uh, temple, uh, and tabernacle are, are terms that are used in the scriptures synonymously. Okay, so I just want us to keep that thought in mind. And it tells us here that God's way, everything that God does, and everything that God is, is actually, can be found in the sanctuary. God's way is in the sanctuary. You see, the sanctuary is the house that houses all truth. That's what the sanctuary is. And you know, when I say the word sanctuary, most of the time, most of us, the picture that comes to our in our mind is most likely the heavenly sanctuary. Isn't that right? That's the most common uh, way that we think of sanctuary. When someone says sanctuary, immediately the first thing you would probably think about is the sanctuary in heaven. And I want us to explore that a little bit today because while that is true and valid and very important, Somehow, as, as Adventists who believe in the sanctuary, we seem to have missed something very, very important. Now, when it says here, God's way is in the sanctuary, I want us to look at a parallel passage in Romans 11. And remember that God's way is in the sanctuary because the topic of the sanctuary is a very vast and deep topic. Romans chapter 11, we're going to. Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, as we look at the fact that God's way is in the sanctuary, here we will see how vast and how wide and how expansive this particular topic really is. Romans 11:33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding 
out. Isn't that right? Now, if we link those two verses together, we find something very interesting. God's way is in the sanctuary. God's ways are past finding out. You know what that means? That the sanctuary doctrine and the sanctuary topic is an issue that is beyond our full comprehension. It is something that is so deep and vast because it actually contains and houses the entire truth of God that we could be studying this particular topic forever and ever be learning and discovering new and wonderful truths. And what this also says to us is that no one person knows everything about the sanctuary. Even all of us collectively, if we put all our understandings together, it will fail to uncover the entire scope of the sanctuary. It is beyond finding out. And that also means that there is no one expert on the sanctuary. You know, many times we tend to think of certain doctrines in a way that, you know, some people specialize in certain doctrines and they become the expert and they become the authority on this subject. For example, you want to talk about this particular subject, you say, oh, you go to Dr. Such and Such, he's a theologian, he's the authority on this particular topic. So here we're seeing from the scriptures, there is no one person who is an authority on this topic. This is something that God himself has told us is beyond our full comprehension. And uh, I'm so thankful for that, because that means, you know, we cannot exhaust this particular treasure. But why is the sanctuary so significant and so important? What is it about the sanctuary? What is it about the temple, about the tabernacle, that gives us this picture that it is the household, it is the storehouse of all truth? If we go to the book of Revelation, we find a passage there, one of those passages that uh, perhaps is a little puzzling, a little intriguing, especially for us if we believe in the uh, extreme importance of the sanctuary doctrine. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Verse 22. Book of Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. And it says here, this is John speaking about the new earth, right? And in verse 22 he says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. That's speaking, of course, of the new Jerusalem there in the new earth. Interesting passage. I don't know if you ever pondered that a little bit. You know, the temple is the Father and the, and the Son. That's what it says in this text. We don't generally think of the temple or of the sanctuary in that way. We generally think of the building. But here it gives us something, that the building is not all there is to the sanctuary. Truth. The sanctuary really is the Father and the Son. After all, it's the Father and the Son who are the house of all truth. Isn't that right? That's really what the scripture here is seeking to portray and to reveal. And that the sanctuary structure and building is nothing but a revelation of the true temple. The Father and the, and the Son. That's really the import of the sanctuary doctrine or the sanctuary truth. And the sanctuary, of course, when we talk about this, you know, someone would say, well, this is after sin. Uh, but we're told something in the Bible that God does not change. Isn't that right? And if the Father and the Son are the temple when sin is all over, that also indicates to us that the Father and the Son were the temple before sin ever came in. And it was actually God's intention in the creation of intelligent beings that they would be a mini temple that He could fill with His presence. Isn't that right? And we see that very, very clearly in uh, the creation of man. If you find that mankind was created in the image of God. And since God the Father and His Son are a temple, so man was also made to be a temple. And the temple is to be inhabited and filled with the Father and the Son. Every intelligent moral creature that God has made was designed to be a temple, a habitation for the indwelling of God, from the highest angel to mankind. But when it comes to mankind, we had a little bit of a problem. We had a slight glitch in the plan that God intended, sadly. But before we go there, I want us to think about something. When God created man in His image, uh, 
And since the Father and the Son are the temple, we see that man was created, therefore, in the image of the Father and the, and the Son. And that's where in Genesis, when it tells us that God said, let us make man in our image, we know that there God was speaking to His Son. And the intention was man would be a temple that God would fill with His presence and with His light and with His glory as a reflection and a manifestation of God's character. That's really what God had in mind. Uh, as we look at that a little bit, I want us to, to think on something as, as we build this, this case. In, uh, in the creation of mankind, uh, I'm sure you can all relate to that. When I was little, uh, we used to have Bible stories. You know, we'd read Bible stories before we go to bed or, or in worship time. And uh, the story of Adam and Eve was always one that, that fascinated me. Uh, and as I grew older, it kind of stood out to me a little more. You always find Adam and Eve in those pictures, they're drawn. Generally, they're not wearing anything, isn't that right? And usually the artists will, will draw them in a way uh, and place them in the, among the bushes or the trees to, to keep the whole image modest, you know what I mean? And, uh, and that, that's, that's pretty clever on their part. But as I grew older, I found that these pictures are not accurate. That Adam and Eve were not naked. And I remember I had a discussion one time with, with one brother, and, and I think I, uh, I expressed that to him. We were talking about this particular topic. And he was adamant and insistent. No, Adam and Eve were naked. The Bible says that in Genesis. As he took me to the Bible passages, they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And so that's where the pictures, these pictures come from. Now, of course, uh, I'm sure you know, as, as I do, that uh, we are told very clearly, especially in, in, uh, in the spirit of prophecy, that Adam and Eve wore garments of, of light. But of course, I could not quote uh, that to the brother. I needed to show him from the Bible that Adam and Eve were not just stark naked, walking, running around the garden. That's not the picture that God gives us. You know, those Bible stories. It's amazing how they stick in your mind. And when you're an adult, it's hard to shake. And they actually preach something to, to the little ones. Anyway, so, so I was puzzled by that. And, and uh, and I went to a passage that reveals to us from the Bible this fact, and that's important actually to keep in mind as we see this progression of the temple that God intended and what happened to that temple. So let's go to Psalms chapter uh, 104 as we look at this particular aspect from the Bible. And you know, we all know that Adam and Eve, they wore garments of light, but how can we prove that from the scriptures? We can't go quote some, uh, you know, patriarchs and prophets to someone. That wouldn't really work. From the scriptures, let's see what the Bible says. Psalm 104, verse 2. And we'll see the import of that for us. Psalm 104, verse 2 says here, Speaking of God, who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain. God here, it tells us in the scriptures, covers himself with light. He wears light. And actually elsewhere in scriptures it makes that very clear. The New Testament says God dwells in light uh, that is unapproachable. Isn't that right? God wears light. So therefore when God made Adam and Eve in his image to be a temple for his presence, they were made also with a covering of, of light. That's what the Bible means when it says in Genesis that they were naked. In, in other words, they weren't wearing clothes like we would wear clothes. Their clothing was something of a different nature. Their clothing was actually light, just like God wears light. That's a very significant aspect because let's now go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see what particularly happened when Adam and Eve rebelled and especially what that means to God's plan for mankind being a temple. Genesis chapter 3. Now we will read verses 6 and 7. Genesis chapter 3. Verses 6 and 7, Eve here is at the tree. You remember the story? Verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Very interesting here, when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the light 
went out. That's what it actually means when it says they knew that they were naked. Now they, a realization that they had lost something. But there is a sequence here that we don't want to miss. Who is the first person who ate from the tree? It was Eve, isn't that right? And then she gave to Adam, and then he did eat. And then the light went out. That covering was lost. Now the loss of the covering represents a disconnection or a breaking from the connection with heaven. The temple that God had intended to inhabit and fill with His light, which the outer physical garment of light was a symbol of God's indwelling, that light now was lost. Mankind ceased to be a dwelling place for God. And that's what the outer light disappearing signifies. But the sequence here I don't want us to miss that's important is that the lights did not go out when Eve ate from the tree, did they? If you look carefully at the verse, the light only went out after Adam ate from the tree. That's very significant. The reason, of course, is it was Adam who was the head, not Eve. And that was Satan's purpose, that in order to compass the fall of mankind, he had to get the head. And the head was Adam. And it was when Adam ate from the tree that the lights for mankind went out. So I want you to picture Adam and Eve as a temple. Mankind, really, that's all the humans that there were at the time. Mankind as a temple for the infilling of the Spirit of God now no longer uh, ceased and no longer was the dwelling place of God. And that was signified by the loss of the outer light, uh, the garments of light. But that garments of light could not be lost except something on the inside was lost first. And that's what happened when Adam and Eve ate from the tree. It was a decision that they made to break away from God's government or from God's kingdom. And when they lost that inner light and that inner connection, the outward naturally followed after that. But keep in mind a very important aspect, a very important sequence. The outward only reveals something that has already been lost on the inside before that. Adam and Eve did not fall when the lights went out. They fell when they took of that tree and they ate. On the inside, something was lost. The lights on the inside went out. And a little, bit while, a little while later, not long, the lights on the outside went out. So spiritual inner and physical outer. There's a connection there. And the spiritual inner is the one that occurs first. And so because of sin, humanity now ceased to be a temple or a dwelling place for God. Instead of light... Humanity was filled with darkness and with evil, evil thoughts. The heart of man no longer revealed the glory and the character of God. And this is where we see now the wonder and the beauty of the plan of salvation. In that God did not abandon mankind, but He had a plan whereby He could restore the temple again. But that plan would involve something very, very important and very costly, as we shall see. So... Uh, of course, the actions of Adam and Eve reveal that separation that happened between them and God. When Christ came to visit, of course, in the garden, we find Adam and Eve, they go into hiding. And there is this fear, all their actions, and, and there is no seeking after God. There is actually a hiding from God. And the only way that that temple could be restored is if God came to seek and to find that which was lost. That's really the mission that Christ came to show that's all portrayed right there in the garden. But the physical and the spiritual, it's important. This happens many times over history. I'll just quickly review with you the fact, uh, so we can keep that in mind, the, the spiritual aspect and the physical aspect. You remember when God gave uh, the instruction for Israel to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then, of course, when they moved into the, uh, into the promised land, that the temple was built by Solomon. You remember that? And the temple was a dwelling place for God. God would dwell in the temple. His glory would be right there in the most holy place. And actually sometimes it would be seen, you know, uh, overflowing. Where the priests, it tells us, couldn't go in and minister uh, sometimes. But then we find that the temple of Solomon was destroyed. Do you remember who destroyed the temple of Solomon? It was? It was Babylon. When Israel went into captivity. And the destruction of that physical temple indicated that Israel had lost sight of God before that. And the destruction of that temple just showed that, that that's a physical 
manifestation of a spiritual lust that they had experienced before that, prior to that. You with me? And this, that's actually why they went into captivity. And God had told them that in, in, uh, in, in the, book of, uh, the book of the law in Moses. But uh, we find again that the temple was rebuilt again by Zerubbabel. And uh, that temple of Zerubbabel, again, was a picture. And every time you look at the temple, you have to remember that it is, it is a picture. It, is, it signifies a deeper reality, more than just the building and the stones and, and the curtains and, and the pillars and all these things. It's a deeper reality. Just as the, the temple in heaven signifies a deeper truth, it actually points us to the Father and the Son, the real and true temple. And what the purpose of the temple is to, to, for God to inhabit His creatures. So the temple of Zerubbabel was rebuilt. And you remember the story when, when some of these older men stood there by the foundations as they were rebuilding the temple, they, they started to do what? They started to cry and weep because the comparison, in comparison, they remembered the glory of Solomon's temple and they saw that this one was so inferior in comparison. Uh, anyway, God promised that He would bless that temple in a greater way and it would have more glory than Solomon's. But then even that temple was destroyed. Who destroyed that temple? So Titus, the Roman, uh, the Roman armies, of course, in 70 AD destroyed that temple. Again, the same thing happened. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem indicated that something had happened to Israel in their spiritual experience before that, where they lost sight and they lost a connection with God. And the destruction of the physical temple followed after that to indicate what had already occurred. So there is, there is a sequence here that I don't want us to miss that happens time and again when it comes to the temple, when it comes to the sanctuary. Spiritual... Loss is followed by a physical, apparent loss that is seen. The spiritual occurs first. And that's what uh, God was seeking to indicate and show uh, with these things. And so in order to restore the temple, in order to restore humanity as a temple for God's dwelling place, God has to begin where the loss occurred first. And that means God has to begin on the inside to restore man as a temple and as a sanctuary. And then that restoration will be realized eventually with a physical, visible uh, token on the outside. So don't be fooled by the fact that the outer shell can continue and remain even though inside it's all gone. We see that time and again. And this is where deceptions can occur. Because, you know, the Jews would have looked at the temple and said, well, the temple is still standing. God is still on our side. But they had already crucified the Lord of that temple. Isn't that right? Something we, uh, for us to keep in mind. And so the study of the sanctuary and the sanctuary doctrine is really none other than the study of how God is going to reclaim the lost temple so that He can inhabit it again. That is really the essence of the sanctuary doctrine. You know, sometimes we oversimplify things so much that we lose sight of what they mean. Just like the Jews. They, they, they focused on the sacrifices and the ceremonies so much that they lost sight completely of what the ceremonies and sacrifices signified to the point that they killed Christ when He came. And in the same way, we as, as Adventists can become focused on the sanctuary doctrine so much that we miss the whole point and import of the sanctuary doctrine. And we think that so long... As I believe that there is a building in heaven, I'm okay. Isn't that right? To many people, that is really the extent of the sanctuary doctrine. I believe in a building in heaven. We want to explore that a little bit today. So it's the study of how God can re restore the temple. How God can reclaim man who now is filled with darkness and fill him again with the light of His presence. That's really what the sanctuary is all about, to make Him a fit temple. Of course, this restoration could only happen by one person. Only one person could restore the temple again. That's the person who initially built that temple. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's have a look there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we will look at verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. And we want to see who is the only qualified person to do this work. 
It's the one who did it at the beginning. Verse 6 says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of, glory, of the glory of God is only seen in one place. It is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not seen in anyone else. And the only way for us to reveal the light of God's glory is if we have the light of Christ in us. That's the only way we can reveal the light of God's glory. So in order to rekindle the light in the temple of humanity that is now darkened, Christ is the only one who could do that. He's the only one who could come and rekindle that light. He did it in the beginning and he'll do it again. And so we find this aspect in the mission of Christ. And if we go to John chapter 2, we find Christ revealing very clearly, and this, this is where it starts getting a little bit interesting, I think. Christ reveals very clearly His mission. You know, when Christ came to earth, there were a number of things that He was doing. He had, he had a multi-layered mission. Of course, it's the restoration of mankind, but that involved a number of things that had to take place. One of them was reclaiming the temple, as we we're saying, in different aspects. And, and what you'll probably find as we're talking this weekend and, and as we we're talking yesterday, uh, the whole issue keeps revolving and coming back to Christ. And the focus is on Christ. You know, there's so many ways to say the same thing. From all kinds of angles, everything points to Christ and the fact that Christ's desire is so that He can rekindle the light of God's presence in our hearts. That's really the whole import of the Gospel. And if, if the Gospel seeks to accomplish anything, it is that, to reclaim man for God's glory. Uh, John chapter 2 is what we're looking at. And in John 2, we have the story of when Christ was on earth. And then he goes to the temple one day. And then he finds a problem, doesn't he? He finds the temple defiled. John 2 verse 15 and 16. And this is at the beginning of his ministry. We'll read the verses and then we'll make some comments. Verse, uh, maybe we'll start with, with verse 13 actually. Just so we can get a little bit of the of the context here. Verse 13, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Interesting story. And this story really is a, is a picture of the entire mission of Christ really played out right there. That physical temple signified the condition of man's heart. Isn't that right? And just as man's heart was filled with defilement and was filled with everything that should not be there, that's how Christ came and found the temple. The temple that was designed to be the place where God dwelt, where the worship of God would take place. He came and found all these buyers and sellers and money changers and extortioners and thieves and liars. They had occupied the place that God was intended to fill. And that was a picture of humanity. And in Christ coming to that temple and cleansing it, we actually see a picture of what Christ intends to do in the heart of man. To remove all that defilement and to cleanse the sanctuary. That's really what was taking place. And, and of course, uh, the disciples maybe didn't fully understand, the people there maybe didn't full un fully understand the import of what Christ had done. But you know, the whole universe is watching and the angels in heaven and the Father, and they're seeing right there being played out what Christ would accomplish on the spiritual level being played out in the physical world. And there's always this parallel in the scripture, the physical and the spiritual. They're, all, they're always uh, paralleled. Not only did Christ do that at the beginning of his ministry, he actually did that again at the close of his ministry, if you remember. Matthew chapter 21 tells us about the same thing being done another time. And once again here, I want us to notice carefully the words that are recorded. Notice the language carefully because it's of significance. Matthew verse, uh, chapter 21, Matthew 21 and verse 12 to 14. Matthew 21 
beginning with verse 12. <clears throat> and Jesus went into the temple of, of God. Isn't that right? That's who the temple belongs to. It's the temple of God. And cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. That's the second time he does that. You know, ever wondered why Christ did that another time? Once at the beginning and once at the end of his ministry. That was highly significant. You see, the cleansing of the sanctuary could only take place with Christ. Only he could do that. And the wonderful thing we see in this picture that I really like is that it's very encouraging. That Christ does not give up easily. You know, just as the temple is a picture of the, man, of the heart of man, you know, Christ can come in and He cleanse, can cleanse our sanctuary, can cleanse this temple. And sometimes through our folly, we go and put in all these things that shouldn't be there. Isn't that right? And Christ doesn't say, look, I've done it once, you've messed it up now, that's it. Praise God, He doesn't say that. You know, Christ doesn't give up. He came again, he, this time He found the sanctuary defiled again, and so He cleansed it again. It shows us that Christ is a relentless Savior. He doesn't give up easily. If you defile that temple and you desire His cleansing presence, He will cleanse the temple. So it's something to encourage us so that we don't give up. You know, sometimes the devil comes in and says, you know, Christ saved you and Christ cleansed your sanctuary, but look, you've gone and messed it all up and filled it all with all these selfish, vile thoughts and, and things. It's too late for you. You've messed it up now. But Christ, in this story, gives us that practical... Uh, encouraging aspect, uh, not to be missed as we go, as we go along here. Uh, but the interesting thing is the language that is used here. You know, the temple was filled with money changers and with these thieves. They, they turned it into a den of thieves, a place that God's presence was meant to be. That actually reveals to us the, the principles that occupied the heart of mankind that replaced the presence of God. The presence of God really is the character of God. It's the character of love, selfless love. The fact that the temple was filled with these money changers actually gives us the principle that defiles the heart of man. What was the driving motivation for all these money changers and all these thieves? There's only one driving motivation for them to do what they did. What was it? Selfish gain. Isn't that right? And that's what happened to the temple of mankind. It was filled with selfishness that replaced the presence of God. So the, the picture there is very accurate of what was taking place on earth. And we need to see the parallels between the two so we can appreciate what was taking place. You know, Jesus said, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Isn't that right? And these things happen in order as well, by the way. That was what the devil had done. He had infiltrated the temple of humanity for the purpose of stealing and killing and destroying what God had intended. And Christ came and He said, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. This is the contest. You see, the, the, who would inhabit the temple of humanity? That was the contest. Christ or Satan? And Christ in His mission showed very clearly that He was do, going to do everything that it would take to reclaim mankind. I want us to not miss something here that's very important. Once again, the physical representing the spiritual. When Jesus made a scourge, and, and He didn't beat anyone with it, of course, but when He cleansed the sanctuary, Christ did that work on His own. Isn't that right? Were the disciples with Him? Yes. They, they certainly were. But we don't find Christ saying, you know, for example, Peter, you get these over there, Andrew, over this corner, and we're all going to drive them out together, does He? He does the work on His own. Now, that's very significant. Because that is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Christ does not delegate the work of cleansing the sanctuary or the temple to anyone. Only He and no one else is qualified to do that work. Now that's of great significance for us as believers in the doctrine of the sanctuary, as we shall see. That has very important ramifications. So I want you to keep that point in mind. The work of cleansing the sanctuary is done by Christ alone and He never delegated that work to anyone. You know, He didn't come the second time and say, look, uh, disciples, you, know, you saw me do it the first time, so Peter, get yourself as courage, 
and you start doing that. He never does that. He is the one who always does it on his own. That's a very important lesson he is trying to teach us. And so in, uh, in the creation of Adam and in the restoration by the second Adam, we see Christ doing a very important work. Let's go to John chapter 20. We read this verse yesterday. I want us to read it again. John 20, in light of what we're talking about here. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Remember when Christ created Adam, and the Bible says He formed him of the dust of the ground, and then it says He did what? He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. And when Adam received that life, the outer light signified that he had that life. And when he ate from the tree, he lost that life, and he lost the light that signified the presence of that life. And so Christ's mission when He came to earth was to restore to mankind what was lost. And we find a parallel verse in John chapter 20 to what happened to Adam at the beginning in the creation. In verse 22. John chapter 20 and verse 22. Notice the parallel here and I think you'll see it very clearly. Jesus speaking to His disciples, And when He had said this, He breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. That's the recreation and the reclaiming of the temple of humanity. That's a parallel verse with Genesis uh, 2-7, I believe it is. So Adam lost that breath, he lost that life, Christ came, in his life on earth he indicated his purpose and his mission, and when his work is accomplished, he says to the Father, it is finished, he goes to heaven, he comes back, and he restores to mankind the life and the light of His presence. He breathes on His disciples and He gives them the Holy Spirit. And of course, as we saw yesterday, this was just a, as a preview of what would happen uh, a few days later, 50 days after that event. So, Christ is the one who is able to do that. And just as Christ is the temple, as we saw earlier, and all creatures were to be inhabited by the presence of God, and that's what Adam and Eve had, that's what they lost. And so when Christ restores life, when He restores light, He also restores His position as the one who rightfully inhabits that temple or that sanctuary. In Hebrews chapter 2, we start seeing Christ in a capacity that has everything to do with this understanding. Hebrews chapter 2. And maybe here it starts to get a little bit more. We go a little deeper in this particular aspect. Hebrews chapter 2. In the end of the chapter there, we'll look at verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. And here we find the scripture tells us, Wherefore, speaking of Christ, in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's one of the reasons why Christ had to be a man as well. Is that He had to be a man, He had to be made like unto His brethren, in order that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And what does a high priest do? Where does he work? He works in the sanctuary. Now we think of Christ as the high priest and we think of Christ as the high priest in the sanctuary over there, somewhere through Orion in the temple in heaven. Isn't that right? And that's all very good and that's very true and that's very well. But we need to not forget the fact that the temple that Christ is seeking to reclaim and inhabit again is this one here. And Christ has to be the high priest of this temple here. Because He is the only one who is a high priest. You see, Christ is doing a double work. And we're actually told that while Christ ministers in the sanctuary above, He is still by His Spirit, the minister of the church on earth. You see, brothers and sisters, we only have one high priest. We don't have two. We don't have three. There's only one high priest. That high priest is Christ. And while He works in the sanctuary above, He is still the one who is working in this sanctuary. You see, doesn't the Bible say that we are the temple of God? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are lively stones. We are a habitation of God. That God wants to dwell in us and walk in us and live in us. 
all these verses reveal that God's intent is to restore this sanctuary here. And the work that is taking place in the sanctuary in heaven, the whole purpose of that work is to restore this one here. And it would be totally futile for us to think that we correctly hold to a sanctuary doctrine when we believe what's taking place in heaven while we dis disassociate that from what is taking place here. That's the deception. And that's what I really want us to think about when it comes to the sanctuary doctrine that we all believe very well. Well, most of us believe it. Some people don't. You know, in Australia down there, we have some people who don't believe in the sanctuary. I think you're familiar with them here, the, the Fordites, we call them, or those who have followed uh, Desmond Ford. You're familiar with that particular branch of, of, of Adventism, or it's not really Adventism in a sense, that deny the heavenly sanctuary. Isn't that right? They don't believe in a heavenly sanctuary. And we look at that with great horror. And we say, what a, what a sad heresy. Praise God, I don't didn't fall for that heresy. I believe in the sanctuary in heaven. Well, that's good and well. But the whole import of the sanctuary in heaven is that Christ is to be the high priest of the temple here. And it's amazing, I find it amazing that all these people that are so adamant on their belief in the sanctuary in heaven have a theology that does not allow for Christ to be the high priest of this temple here. If you know what I mean. They're happy for Christ to be the priest of the temple in heaven, but there is a problem with him being the high priest of the temple here. As a matter of fact, they actually believe that Christ delegates the work of supervising this temple and ministering in this temple to someone else. And it doesn't matter who you call that someone else or what you call that someone else. If it's anyone other than Christ, you have a very serious problem. And it doesn't matter how much you believe in a building in heaven. That's the real problem that we have. So Christ is the only priest. Christ is the only one that can fill that. Today there's a very sad deception. There's a, a theology, a very sad theology. And that is the theology of the Trinity. And the theology of the Trinity teaches us simply this, that Christ is not the high priest of this temple on earth. It's someone else. It's called God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't matter if you call it God or don't call it God. It's someone other than Christ. And if it's someone other than Christ, you have a very serious problem. And somehow we have come to think that we are safe and secure so long as we believe that Christ is, is the, the minister of the temple in heaven while we have someone else ministering in the temple on earth. You know, I had a discussion one time with a brother. And I asked him, you know, I, I was studying the truth about God and I asked him, uh, you know, where is Christ right now? And he said, well, Christ is in the most holy place, uh, ministering in the sanctuary in heaven. I said, amen. Well, who's here on earth now? He said, well, that's someone else. It's the comforter, God, the Holy Spirit. I said, so it's not Christ. He said, no, Christ is up there. And there's someone else down here. You see, this, is, this theology is the destruction of the sanctuary doctrine. You don't have a sanctuary doctrine if Christ is not the high priest of every single temple there is. Amen. And that's a sad, sad theology that we have adopted today. You know, the devil is happy for you to think you're safe and secure, believing that Christ is the priest of the temple in heaven. He says, well, so long as we can get someone else down here. And this is why Christ was very careful in what he did on earth and what he revealed. That he is the true minister of the sanctuary and no one else. Hebrews chapter 5 gives us another text as to why only Christ qualifies for this particular role and this particular function. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. It tells us here that every priest is taken from where? From among men, and that's what qualifies him to be ordained for men. That's why Christ had to be a man. You know, I don't think I need to, to ask you if uh, the Holy Spirit, if it is someone other than Christ, has become a man. The obvious answer is no. Therefore, he's not qualified, according to the Bible, to be your priest. And yet, that's what most people believe. Isn't that right? That's what most people believe, this sad deception that has come upon us. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, again, a few beautiful verses in the book of Hebrews, it tells us to do something. And this is what I want us to focus on here. If, if there's any thought I want to leave you with this morning, it's this one in this verse. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. And Paul here admonishes the believers and tells them to do something. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. What does consider mean? Think about, meditate on, think deeply on. Consider is not just a passing thought, it's to consider, it's to look carefully and intently on something for the purpose of understanding it and for the purpose of uh, benefiting from that. We find here that what we're told to consider is Christ and we're to consider Him in what capacity? As the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our profession. And you know, when, when I used to read that verse, I used to always think, first thing comes, ah yes, and I have a picture. Christ is up there in the temple, in the most holy place. There is the, there is the Ark of the Covenant and the throne of God. And right there, Christ is standing and ministering. And I am to consider Him and to dwell on thinking on that. Isn't that right? That's excellent. That's great. But how about considering Him in this temple? Because it doesn't say here, that's what we do. It doesn't say you need to consider Him up there. It just says consider Him as the high priest. And sadly, we have taken away, in general, as a people, collectively, we have taken away the credit that is due to Christ for His ministry in this temple, and we give Him partial credit. We give Him credit for what He's doing up there, but we do not give Him credit for what He's doing down here. We give that credit to someone else. You know, the temple cannot be cleansed by anyone else. This is the problem we have. The Bible says of the Son, therefore, shall make you free. That's how you shall be free indeed. Only the Son can make you free. And so I want you to consider that. And I want you to consider the fact that when we believe in particular aspects of, of the sanctuary doctrine, you know, we all, we all believe in the cleansing of the sanctuary, isn't that right? And when we talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary, what's the first thing we think of? Isn't that right? And that's true, but we miss right here. You know, the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven has to be paralleled with the cleansing of this temple here. The cleansing of the collective temple of God's people on earth. Because the temple on earth is not made of one person. Just as the temple, the physical temple, is not made of one stone. And the Bible says that we are stones. In other words, the collective temple of Christ here on earth, of which He is the high priest, has to be cleansed in conjunction with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. There is the heavenly and the earthly, and they must parallel. Just as we saw yesterday, when Christ was anointed in heaven and was glorified, there was a counterpart event that happened on earth. And the two are linked. And the link between the two is Christ. He is the only mediator. In the same way, the cleansing of the sanctuary that happens in heaven has to have a counterpart on earth. And it can only be accomplished by Christ because He is the only link. But brothers and sisters, sadly, as a theology of deception has come in that breaks this continuity and this connection between heaven and earth. And it says, yes, Christ can minister in the sanctuary in heaven. You can believe that. So the devil says, he's happy for you to believe that. So long as you believe someone else is here. Because he knows then there is a problem in the program. There is a disharmony. And we have a very serious problem. And, and we look to that and we think on this cleansing of the sanctuary and when that will happen. And somehow we miss that this sanctuary here is the one that is defiled by sin that needs the cleansing presence of Jesus. And we shut him out. We have adopted a theology that shuts him out of his rightful position as the high priest of his temple. And that's when people start saying to me, you know, well, the Trinity issue and the God, do you think it is salvational? Well, I think you can answer that question now. The whole plan of God is to restore humanity for Him to be present in them, for Christ to be the high priest of His people. So if you have an understanding that eliminates Christ from being the high priest of His temple, then how is that the restoration of the temple? That's something worth pondering, and that's something worth considering. And I want us to keep in mind the fact that when we talk about Christ being the high priest, it's not just the theological position that we have. You know, sometimes we say, yes, I believe He's the high priest here on earth, and it's just that. It's just a theologi theological position. 
But brothers and sisters, when Christ came into the temple on earth, He cleansed it. And the cleansing, the effects of that cleansing were manifest and obvious and seen. The people that did not belong there were gone. And then the Bible says that all the people came in and Christ healed every one of them and they were singing praises to God. The work of Christ in the temple has fruits that are manifest, that are seen. The physical part, remember we're talking about the physical part, the outward manifestation. That is a revelation of what takes place prior to that on the inside. So if Christ really is your high priest in the sanctuary above, and He's really your high priest in this temple, we need to see the manifestation of His work. That's the whole purpose, really, of the sanctuary doctrine. It's how God reclaims humanity and shows that the light of His presence can still be kindled in the human temple. Otherwise, we, all we have is a dry, lifeless theory. And a dry, lifeless theory is not going to save us. God is not going to line us up at the gate of heaven and say, all those who believed in the sanctuary doctrine on this side. And sadly, that's what most people believe, isn't that right? We have a sense of security because somehow we believe there is a building in heaven and Christ is working in that building. Not realizing the full import of what that doctrine really means. It's right here. And while we believe that, we say, oh, no, no, over here it's someone else. That is the sad state of affairs that we have come to. Okay, I think I've made the point very clear. I keep harping on that. But because, brothers and sisters, it is so important. We don't realize that our understanding and our theology impacts how we relate to these heavenly things. And that's why people have come up with the novel idea that there is not one mediator, but two. Have you ever heard that? You know, some of you are shaking their heads, no, some yes. I've heard that. I've heard preachers say to people, well, there are two mediators. That's a logical conclusion when you believe that Christ is in the temple in heaven and someone else is doing the work here. That's logical. That's consistent. But it's not biblical. That's the problem. Two mediators. The Bible says there's only one. Or two intercessors. The Bible says there's only one. So we need to consider Christ in His capacity as the high priest of the soul temple. That's what the apostle is calling us to do. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the high, uh, the high priest and apostle of our calling. You know, when we, look at the, when we think of the sanctuary, we think of the furniture. Every item of furniture points to Christ. I don't have the time now to go through that in detail. But you remember, there's something very interesting about the sanctuary. The tabernacle or the sanctuary had no windows. There was no external source of light. Any light in the sanctuary had to be internal. Isn't that right? The priest wouldn't come in the morning, open the window, so some light would come in. There was no window. The priest would come in and the light in the sanctuary came from the lampstand. Isn't that right? Of course, the lampstand and the light there represents who? Christ. I am the light of the world, he said. That's the symbol of Christ. You look at the other items of furniture, every one of them is a symbol of Christ. You look at the showbread, Jesus said, I am the the bread that came down from heaven. You look at the altar of incense, and you see that the incense represents what? Come on, Adventists, we all know the sanctuary doctrine. This is, this is easy stuff for us. Incense is what? Prayers. prayers. The prayers of the saints are true, but not only prayers, it's also a symbol of the perfuming righteousness of Christ that the priest would cover himself with when he went through the, through the veil. And what's the veil represent? Christ, again. His body, the Christ... Uh, his flesh, when his flesh was torn, that's when the veil was torn. He is the way that brings us to the most holy place. And in the most holy place, we find the Ark of the Testimony. And what's in the Ark? The law. And the law is none other than a picture, uh, or rather a, a written picture of what Christ and his character looks like. Doesn't the Bible say Christ is the end of the law for what? For righteousness sake. And the end there means he's the object, he is the, the goal. He is the ultimate expression of the law for righteousness sake. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant there, the mercy seat, you find a very special uh, manifestation. What was that called? The Shekinah glory. You know, I always heard the Shekinah glory growing up. I went to look for it, to look for it in the Bible and I didn't find it there. It doesn't mean it's not true. The, the, the Jewish uh, traditions tell us that and that's the Jewish word that comes from from there, but it's not a biblical word, but it actually reveals the fact that the presence of God was manifest in a visible way on the mercy seat. And that light would fill the most holy place. That's really a picture of what God wants to do for humanity. 
And that light, that visible light, is also representative of Christ because the Bible tells us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now glory is something that you can see. Not always with these physical eyes. One day we'll all see it with these physical eyes. But Christ in us is the hope of the full realization of that glory which one day will be seen. And when it is seen, it means that it already has been kindled on the inside. And it cannot be seen on the outside except it is first kindled on the inside. The connection between the spiritual internal and the physical external is very, very significant. So this is what we are to consider when we talk about the sanctuary. When we talk about the doctrine of the sanctuary. I want us to think of it in light, in light of what Christ has done. It's not just some theory that we sit and argue about and which apartment and this side and that side and all that. It's not only that, brothers and sisters. It is what Christ is trying to do here on earth. You know, we get so caught up in that. I've had so many, sat in so many discussions of people arguing and discussing the sanctuary and up there and in heaven and the building and how big and how small and the items and all that stuff. And we think this is what the sanctuary doctrine is made of. It is not just that. And it will be a sad loss if we thought that this was all there is to it. Revelation 21, notice what the purpose here of this beautiful truth is. Revelation 21. <clears throat> Revelation 21 verse 3. Revelation 21 verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be with them and be their God. There is the purpose and the ultimate realization of the sanctuary doctrine. And that can only happen, brothers and sisters, if Christ tabernacles here. Isn't that what he said? Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among us. And then in John 1 it tells us, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. That's really what it means. And tabernacled among us doesn't mean he, you know, he was you know, my neighbor. He wants to tabernacle here in this temple. That's what the purpose of that whole mission is. God wants to dwell in us. God wants to have us reclaimed as His temple. And only Jesus Christ can light that light on the inside. That's why we're emphasizing Christ and the sad problem that we have. You see, today we have a collective problem as Adventists. And when I use the word Adventist here, I use it in its broadest sense possible. So that incorporates people inside, people outside, people offside, people offshoot, uh, independent, dependent, codependent, everything in between. You know what I'm talking about. You know, this is, the, this is the problem that we have collectively as Adventists who claim and profess to believe in the sanctuary doctrine. Our problem is Christ has been stolen from us as the high priest of the temple here. And we have settled for a false security in the building in heaven, while all the while we're denying the priest of this temple here. Is this why we're still here today? While we believe in the sanctuary, because we're told the sanctuary doctrine is the, the house of all other truths, isn't that right? God's way is in the sanctuary. You see, God's way is how He will restore mankind. The sanctuary doctrine is really the gospel. That's really what it is. That's the foundation of our faith, the gospel. The wonderful plan that God had, how He would restore mankind and make them again His temple. This is really what the sanctuary is all about. That He would dwell in them and that Christ would be the sovereign, undisputed high priest of His people. That's really the import of it. If it's anything else in our minds, brothers and sisters, we have a, we have a deception. We have a very, very serious problem. Not only is it in, uh, in uh, the church and all its para-organizations in and out. But even among believers in the truth about God, we have a very, very sad deception as well. You know, we have this, uh, this tribal mentality sometimes. Brother David was talking yesterday about splits 
and things that happen. And sadly, we have this problem. It happened in Corinth and it happens again today. We have a tribal mentality. I want to explain to you what I mean by a tribal mentality because it's, it's good when we understand the truth, but I want to see how we can apply it, apply it practically to resolve the problem that we have today. Tribal mentality, remember Israel had 12 tribes, right? And many times these tribes would have feuds between each other. They, they wouldn't like each other. These tribes would, would band against these tribes and they would fight. They would go to war over whatever issues there might be. Sometimes trivial, trivial issues, nonsense issues. One time they went to battle without inviting this tribe and said, how come you went to battle without us? And let's, we're going to attack you. Nonsense issues that happened. And these tribes were fighting with each other. And sometimes these tribes would say, okay, we'll band together and we'll form a coalition and we're going to fight against these tribes over there. And you know, the problem, brothers and sisters, we still have this issue happening today among us as a people. We have tribal mentality, isn't that right? You know, this tribe here bands together and they're against this tribe over here. And if someone ventures to go into that tribe there, that's it. They belong to the other side and they're going to get attacked. And sometimes some of these tribes, they band together, even though they might have things that, uh, differences between them. All of a sudden, in light of the fight against that tribe, let us, let us put aside our differences for now. And let us band together and fight against this tribe. And you know, we have tribal rules, you know. In order, in order to join this tribe, you must agree with everything that the leader of this tribe says. If you don't, you're going to be cast out. And this tribe over here says, well, you must attend our gatherings and not attend the gatherings of any of the other tribes. If you do, you're going to be cast out. And then there are people who say, you know what, this tribal mentality is so wrong. I, I don't want to belong. I, I want to be free. To, I can go here. I can go. I don't want to take sides. I, I want to be a non-tribal person. And so they get classed as the non-tribal tribe. And then we have a problem because that mentality is so prevalent. You know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters. That is so discouraging and disheartening. You know, I have, I have young people. I talk to young people sometimes. And some of the young people, they see what's happening and they don't know what to make of it. And they see, you know, the head of this tribe and the head of this tribe. And they're going at each other, at each other's throats. And you know how discouraging and disheartening for their faith that is? And you know that when we contribute to that type of mentality, we are not manifesting that Christ is ministering here. That's really what the problem is. The Bible says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised there is wisdom. I pray that we will have the heavenly wisdom to realize that the work of Christ here needs to be manifested, needs to bear fruit. And you know, when we talk about these things, I want you to understand that that's not really the problem. Self. That's the symptom of a deeper problem. The deeper problem is in that verse that I just mentioned. Only by pride cometh contention. That means the sovereign priest in this temple is not Christ. It is someone else. And you might believe in the truth about God. You don't believe that the Holy Spirit is someone else. And you say, well, I believe the truth about God. But if the high priest in your temple manifests this fruit, then it is only the priest of self. That is really what the issue is. It doesn't matter who replaces Christ as that priest here. It's not just the Trinity problem. If it's anyone else or anything else, we cannot have a cleansed sanctuary. So unless you believe in the sanctuary doctrine where Christ is your priest here and no one else, then your belief in the sanctuary doctrine will not amount to much. That's really the challenge I want to leave with you. Let's go to our last text in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21. Ephesians 2 and verse 21. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21. This is what Christ is seeking to accomplish here. Verse 21 said, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That's God's purpose for us. So that we can be fitly joined together and framed together, so that we can grow together and that we can all be a building, a habitation for Christ. A habitation of God through the, through the Spirit. That's why we are saying earlier, the temple is not made of one stone. And while you might be 
good and well and okay yourself, the temple cannot be built with one or two stones. It's all the stones put together. And God has not assigned the work of building the temple to anyone but Christ. The Bible prophesied of him and said, and he shall, bear the, he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory. Isn't that right? In that passage we use a lot in, in Zechariah about the council of peace being between them both. It also tells us who the builder of the temple or the sanctuary is. And Christ is building here on earth. And sadly we have many times self-appointed engineers and builders who say, this stone fits here, but this stone doesn't fit. This stone needs to be cast out. It doesn't belong in the building. And sadly we think, and just because the stone doesn't look like us, or doesn't talk like us, or doesn't necessarily believe everything like us, then that stone is not fit to be in the building of the sanctuary. And sadly we have self-appointed leaders who have taken upon them the, the woeful responsibility of determining who is qualified to be in the temple. Beware, because when Azza touched the ark, he did not live very long after that. He was stepping on that which was God's prerogative only. God is the builder of the temple, and He is polishing and molding and chiseling the stones so they could all fit. And not every stone is identical. And if you will only say, I want to be in the sanctuary where every stone is just like me, you just might very well end up being not in the sanctuary yourself. God is building the temple. He decides who's in and who's out. And He is working on bringing us all so that we can all fit together. Different stones lined up together to make one habitation for God. So I want to pray that we might fully understand what it means when the Bible tells us that the sanctuary is the, the truth where God's way is found in the sanctuary. And as Adventists, to understand what the sanctuary doctrine really is all about. It is all about Christ being the high priest of this temple here. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.